Hey there, welcome to Board Game Hot Takes, the podcast where we give our immediate reactions to the hottest board games just minutes after playing them. My name is Tim. And this is Chris. And this is Adam. And today we're going to talk about the game we just finished playing. Ankh? Yeah, Ankh, Gods of Egypt. But before we give a description of that game, uh, we do have some poll results. Poll results that you guys have probably all been just sitting on the edge of your seats waiting for. And that is our big... Our big news about renaming our show. We've been talking about it, talking it up for weeks. We had a poll, got your guys' feedback. And so I'm going to give you the poll results, and then I'm going to give you our final decision here. So in this poll, we, we gave four names that we were thinking about. Number one was Board Game Test Drive. We got 29% on that. Board Game Snapshot was at 11%. Board Game Breakdown was the big winner here at 48%. And then the Board Game Podcast just fell flat at 12%. A little bit about these results. As I mentioned when we first announced this is that we we wanted to get some feedback, see if something's hit, something's missed. For example, my my favorite choice in the in the list was the board game podcast, but clearly nobody else got the joke. They, they didn't think it was as clever as I did. So not a lot of big fans there. We're just going to cut that one out. Tim, what is the joke there? Maybe you can explain <laughs> it and that'll probably <laughs> make the joke We're obviously not the board game podcast. We're like a one of many, many, many board game podcasts. So I just, I think it's clever. I, I thought it was funny. We're not even a particularly good board game podcast. <laughs> well, that's why it's a joke. That's what's funny about it. It's ironic. We could call ourselves the mediocre, <laughs> the less than mediocre board game podcast. That that's a little too on the right nose there. though. There's no joke there. That's just like, that's <laughs> Hits that's a little too close that's to really home. Hard. All right. So the other one that um, didn't get very good results, which was Board Game Snapshot. And I was fine with that, actually, because I didn't really like that name very much. Chris, you didn't. Did you say you didn't like that one very much either? Yeah. You were good with that. You're fine with it. Whatever. Whatever. Well, anyway, so so we got to toss those two out, right? So it seems like we're leaning in on Board Game Breakdown. Perfect, right? Except a couple days after this poll launched, somebody was nice enough to tell me on Twitter that Board Game Geek actually has a running YouTube show called The Board Game Breakdown. Uh, it's run by the host, uh, Candace Harris, I think, who um, interviews different people in the board game industry. And so that seems like a pretty bad idea for us to pick a name of a show that already exists. Unfortunately, I think we missed it by like six months. So we're not going to use that name. And and that left us with Board Game Test Drive, which we were all excited about at various points. But we got a lot of really good feedback on here. A lot of people felt it was clunky. It was just a lateral move from Board Game Hot Takes. Not a Not an awesome fit for us. So we're not taking that one either. The big news that we've been announcing for weeks is that we're not changing our name at this point. And we literally just came to that conclusion five minutes before recording this conversation. We just we just hashed it out, talked about what we wanted to do. So for right now, we're not going to change our name. We're going to kind of hold that in our back pocket, though. That might come sometime in the future if we all hit this spark of inspiration and really get excited about a name that we think is going to work. But really appreciate you all being a part of it, giving us your feedback. Um, and we did have some really nice comments from people saying that they liked our name, that it worked just fine. It, it told them what we were doing. Really good feedback from people telling us what they did and didn't like about these other names and kind of helped us know whether this was a good move or a bad move or whatever. So as I mentioned to my co-hosts here, I'm kind of glad we're not changing it because now I don't have to go through all the work of changing the names through all these platforms and 
new domain name and all that stuff. Don't have to worry about that right now. Maybe sometime in the future. Any other thoughts you guys want to add in there? Yeah, you know, the thing that really cemented it in my head was that if we changed our name, I could no longer make the joke with my son, you know, board game hotcakes. Can't argue with that. All right. Sounds good. All right. So we're, we're sticking the way we are right now. Sorry for the uh, big reveal of absolutely nothing. Let's go ahead and move on. So we're going to jump through a description of Ankh, Gods of Egypt. In Ankh, Gods of Egypt, you play as gods trying to maintain your relevance by fighting for devotion of the people of Egypt. The game board is separated into a number of regions based on player count. Each player starts with their god, one warrior, and a monument they control in one region. And there are also other uncontrolled monuments around the board. On your turn, you'll take two different actions, which may include moving all of your figures up to three spaces, summoning one new figure from a pool, gaining followers equal to the number of controlled or neutral monuments that you're adjacent to, and unlocking Ankh powers, which allow you to spend followers to gain a new ongoing ability, and possibly unlocking new types of figures for your pool. Each time a player takes an action, they move a marker for that action along a track, and when one of the markers reaches the end of a track, an event occurs. Each time an event occurs, players move a marker to the next space on the event track and trigger the next event. Events can include taking control of neutral monuments, separating a territory into multiple territories with a caravan of camels, or triggering a conflict. When a conflict is triggered, every player that controls a majority of each type of monument in a region will gain devotion, and then a conflict will trigger in each region where players will play a card from their hand, which may adjust their combat strength, and then add that to the number of characters they control. The highest strength wins the conflict and gains additional devotion, while the losing players' figures are sent back to their figure pool. After the third conflict event occurs, the two players with the lowest devotion will merge and will start playing a cooperative game as a single god against the other players. After the fourth conflict event occurs, any players that haven't reached a certain threshold of devotion will be forgotten by the people of Egypt and removed from the game. The game ends after the fifth conflict event or can trigger if any player reaches the top space of the devotion track. In either case, the player with the most devotion wins the game. There are a lot of other additional details that I didn't cover here, but that should give you a pretty good idea how the game plays. Ankh Gods of Egypt was designed by Eric Lang and is published by Kaman Games. All right, so we're back and let's talk about Ankh Gods of Egypt. All three of us played for the first time tonight, played on Tabletop Simulator and got our first game of Ankh in. So I'm excited to talk about this game because for me, there were a lot of mechanisms here that were very unique and it was not just one or two things. I think uh, there's a big elephant in the room people are waiting to hear about. I think there was a whole bunch of stuff that was done in interesting and unique ways here. So Chris, why don't you start us off tonight? Anything that you wanted to, to bring up from a mechanisms perspective? Well, since you put me first, I'm going to jump right into the elephant in the room because it really is tremendously impactful here. And that is the culling mechanism that the game uses toward the end of the game. And there's two different ways the game does that. One of which is to combine two players, the two bottom players, about two thirds of the way through the game, I think it was. And then when you get down about three quarters of the way through the game, it eliminates any players that haven't made it to a certain point on the scoring track. And my goodness, this was so huge and in my opinion, in a not very good way. I did not like these, these mechanisms because, well, for a couple of reasons. For one, the whole combination thing. You know, well, I don't like co-op games generally. And so all of a sudden it turns this area control game into like this mini co-op. And that's just not my style. Not, not something I really dig. 
it didn't strike me as something that really evened the playing field. In this game, Tim and I got combined, and as, as much as I love being on a, uh, a team with Tim, it just didn't feel like it really put us, you know, at the bottom back into the game. It felt more like, you know, I'm a big, dumb loser, and, you know, let me find another big, dumb loser, and then we can lose together. So there was that. And then the part at the end where you, you eliminate the players who haven't made it into the blue area of the scoring track, that one, I just, I don't get that one at all. Because all you're doing there is making it so that one person or more people are just going to be sitting there doing nothing while the other folks finish the game. In our case, thankfully, the game ended very shortly after that. So we didn't get to that place. But I didn't see any reason for that one. But I'm, I'm dying to hear what you guys think to see if there's any dissenting opinions on that. Yeah, I have a dissenting opinion. I, I think you're wrong about the merge, Chris. I thought it was pretty cool. There's so, much, uh, so many other cool mechanisms in this game. But since you brought it up, let's talk about it. I wanted to get merged. I wanted to be on Tim's team. I wanted triumphant come from behind victory with all these combo powers and all these things. And I was thinking of ways I was planning for it. I was already pre-planning for ways to pull off this merged power with all these abilities. I was looking forward to getting in there with Tim brainstorming and coming from behind. I thought it was cool. You know what? I like the little red zone cutoff too. It adds this tension to the game. You're like, oh my gosh, am I going to make it? Am I going to get eliminated? I think there was only, you know, two or three events or two or three rounds or however, I don't know. They're not really rounds or events. That's some other mechanisms we're going to talk about a little bit. But it, the game didn't go, it didn't go on much longer after that little threshold, after it was reached on the little board there. So I thought both of those potentially culling from, you know, one player into a, a mega god, I thought those were great. Tim, what, what did you I pretty much those? agree with Adam 100% on this. I actually was really excited about the scenario about what set us up for the merge and that you know, coming up to that, Steve had a pretty good lead, right? You know, about the time we were about to merge, Steve was like four or five reputation or prestige or I don't know, honor or whatever it is, points, basically points above us. I don't know what the, what it's called in this game. Devotion. Devotion. Okay. So Steve was going to not definitely not be the one merging, but the three of us were right on the, the cusp and it really came down to the last battle right when that merge was going to happen. And depending on which cards each of us played, it could have been any one of us. And we thought it was going to be me and Adam, but I managed to pull one thing that pulled Chris from getting one more point. Adam managed to get one more point than expected. And so me and Chris merged instead of Adam. So in all honesty, it was kind of fun. And it was kind of fun for me and Adam to be like, hey, this is probably going to happen. How do we set ourselves up best to prep for this? And so the people that were at the bottom were all kind of working together to be like, okay, we don't want you to get too far ahead because you're just going to fall back down. So how do you help me get back up there? So it was kind of like this, little bit of cooperation in the middle to try to catch the leader. So I think it did actually help the people in the behind, in the back just at that point. It let someone not get too far behind. And and working together, yeah, it did turn into a cooperative game, but this was so short. I mean, what we play like three or four more turns or, or something like that from the time that we merged until the time that the game was over. Could have gone a couple more turns, but it, it, it didn't. Cooperating was okay. You know, yeah, I agree, Chris. I don't want to cooperate necessarily either. We made a couple decisions about like, should we move this here? Or should we play this combat card? But there wasn't that many things that we had to do cooperatively. But one of the things that did help from for as far as coming from behind, it did two things. One is it combined the god powers. So now we had both of our powers to work off, which are not majorly impactful, but they did have some, both of us got to use the abilities on it. The other thing that happened though, is that because we each got to take one action instead of two on our turns, 
like we both got to move on our second to last round. So you moved, I moved. We got all these troops all the way across the board in a way that a single player couldn't have and actually set us up to do pretty well. Now, Steve just had a runaway victory at that point. He had so much power. He had, you know, so many ways to play cards from his hands and all this stuff that we we didn't catch up. But listen, we all got out of the red zone. Yeah, it could suck to be the person that doesn't get out. But at that point, there's like three more turns max that are going to happen at that point. So it really wasn't, no one's going to be sitting around. Nobody wants to feel that way. But I don't know. I thought I thought it was actually quite fun and, and very unique. And, you know, I don't know. I thought it was, it was an interesting change of game. It didn't bother me too much. I thought that it added a nice kind of organic diplomacy. There wasn't this kind of forced mechanism that said, okay, you guys have to be diplomatic now and here's a card that you trade and now you guys can't be traders or you're going to get negative five points. I like that during the game, you know, Tim and I were like, okay, my God had this power that I wanted to use. It could prevent other players in combat from playing specific cards or even prevent everybody in combat from playing a specific card. So even in combats that I wasn't in, I would throw my little my little token in that region, I'd say, okay, guys, how can I keep Steve from getting runaway points here? How can I wrangle Chris back in to, so we're not way, way behind when we have to merge? So there's a few times I would ask Tim, mostly just Tim, hey, what, <laughs> what card do you want me to prevent anybody from playing? And so it's kind of a neat, I don't know, organic yeah. diplomacy that's in there. So sort of cooperative elements but again you're going for your own victory in the end and i thought that was pretty cool that's really interesting that you use the term diplomacy for that because it felt to me nothing like diplomacy it felt like you know you had a, a target on your back you know the whole game was people teaming up on other people i feel like tim should be saying this because this is what tim always says but that's no fun that's no fun i just that to me i just i did not like that aspect of it and yeah. maybe in my old age, I'm just getting more and more sensitive to that. But just having that every turn, having people ganging up on somebody else, you know, sometimes it was me, sometimes it was other people, but I just didn't, didn't like it. Didn't enjoy that. Yeah. But that's area control, Chris. And, and the, the, the thing was though, that people were always ganging up on the leader and that's, that's what should be happening in an area control game, because that's the only way you're going to stop the person from running away, you know, and the asymmetric powers and, and everything else. Uh, we didn't do a very good job, right? We let Steve get too much of a lead early on. But I also can understand where you're coming from because right when we were coming up that merge, you know, it looked like Adam and I were going to merge. And so we were just like picking on you so that we had mm -hmm. the possibility of pulling you back a little bit because we couldn't really touch Steve at that point. And so, yeah, you, you were the target of it for sure. Um, Steve was the target of it a heck of a lot. So I'm sure he also felt that a little bit, although he did say when we all wrapped up that he loved the game, that he had a great experience with it. So that's three three out of four of us that were complaining during the game about this. And I think Adam was the one exception because you always complained about that. And <laughs> and, and Adam probably was complaining in his head, but wasn't saying anything. No, no. Okay. So Adam Adam was the one uh, the one who wasn't complaining. Fair. That's fair. Well, Adam did complain a couple of times when I would move into his territory. He's like, go after, t go after Steve. And yeah. I'd be like, he's, he's like 15 spaces away. I can't go after him. <laughs> Just moving through your territory, man. Stay back off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, all right. Well, let's move on. So one of the other things I thought was pretty fun here was the combat itself. And that is that this is one of those combats similar to Kemet or Scythe where everybody reveals a card at combat. But I thought what was pretty cool here is that all the cards were very unique and they had very different powers. Some of them 
you would play it and you wouldn't get any boost on your power, but you get a benefit if your people died. Or you, you'd get a benefit if you happen to have guys in a certain territory. Or you just gain a lot of strength from it. Or you can create a little bidding war and makes everybody sacrifice their characters. Like every one of those cards, I think everybody had seven, did something really, really different. And that was a fun little bluffing game to say like, okay, I know he doesn't have this card anymore. So what could he possibly be setting himself up for? What do you guys think of the, the combat mechanism here? And it's funny because we just talked about Dune two weeks ago as one of our favorite combat mechanisms. So maybe make some comparisons there too. But, but how do you guys feel about the combat here? In comparison to Dune, which I think Chris called it a little bit, he didn't say this exactly, but a little bit one dimensional. You're kind of doing the same thing over and over. You're going after, maybe you have the guy's trader card, maybe not. Otherwise, kind of standard stuff you put on the dial wheel here's your leader here's your weapon here's your other thing rock scissors paper boop i'm the winner now here man the, the combat was just totally unique some of the combat cards that you play to supplement your guys are like little actions too like sometimes you get to build a monument during combat and that can can combo up with your god's powers or your combat power so i had for instance I had an ability where for every temple I built, if that was adjacent to one of my characters, that added to combat. And then I had another ability where if I had three of the same type of structure, same type of monument, and I controlled them, that added three to the strength of my god's combat ability. I never got to use that one. I was, I was setting up to use it for the next round, but it never happened because Steve took the victory. But you can see these kind of compile and can make your guys stronger and stronger if you're using them correctly. So this, the combat here was fascinating in that it adds kind of more to the board or more to your actions. It's not just a, oh, here's your strength, here's your defense. It's really dynamic in a way that I haven't seen in any other games. Chris, what's your take? I really liked it as well for the same reasons, I think. It was... It was dynamic. There were those cards that weren't even necessarily related to combat. So building a monument, for example, that was it basically let you take a combat scenario and do something non-combat related that got you points. And I thought that was pretty cool. And there was the equivalent of the Loki cards from Blood Rage, where you got big points for your guys dying in combat. And I thought that was pretty interesting. It, there was a lot of similarity with Kemet. There was similar, actually the, one of the similarities that I kept coming up, that kept coming up in my mind was with Fractal. I thought this had both some of the same benefits and some of the same downsides as Fractal. The benefit was that it allowed you to do this very strategic kind of combat where you're not just rolling dice. You're playing cards and you have a, have a good sense of what your opponents still have in their hands so you can make some really educated uh, choices. But the downside of that is that you can make these really educated choices, which means that every time combat came up, you basically you could figure out the optimal solution by checking all of your opponent's abilities, checking all the cards your opponent has played comparing those and cross-referencing them against all the things that you have in your hand. Unfortunately, that just ended up taking a long time. So if it was a battle you're in that you're in the middle of, if you're one of the participants, I think that's a lot of fun. But there was at least a couple times when it just felt like the battles were going on and on because folks were rightfully looking over all their options and trying to figure out a solution. We had that complaint about Fractal, and I think I had the same one here, even though I do like the mechanism. Yeah, I think the cards are more interesting here than they were in Fractal and that it wasn't just like a couple that, you know, pick a, pick a type of unit and then do X amount of damage to it. 
you know, these actually had some more fun and interesting effects, but com completely agree, the game just went to a standstill. For some reason, I didn't feel too, like, I, I was having fun kind of seeing how the outcomes of the battles came, even even versus like Kemet, which I think went a little bit quicker than this one. Maybe it was just my mood tonight. I was just in a more giving mood. Completely valid concern. One other thing that you mentioned was about how when you're doing combat, you have to kind of look around everybody's player mats and figure out what cards they played and stuff like that. And there's another element to that in this game, and that is the Ankh powers. And that's how, you know, there's a way to basically sacrifice followers to take one of these tokens off the bottom of your player mat and move it up and essentially grant you a permanent ability during the rest of the game. Now, I think that was pretty fun and it was neat that as you as you advance some of those Ankh powers, you would also get additional types of units you could get access to. But one of the challenges with it was that everybody, even though they all had access to the same pool of powers, they only uncovered two per type. So basically the max you could do is about half the powers that are available to you. But you had to constantly look in at everybody else's boards and seeing which powers they had unlocked. It wasn't even like they were asymmetric. So... I wouldn't know that, okay, I remember Chris did that one thing, but it's because Chris and Steve and Adam and I all have access to the same powers. I don't remember whether Chris unlocked that one or whether Steve unlocked that one. So even my own powers, I had to keep going back and checking my own board because it was so similar to what everyone else was doing that it just felt like a constant, I have to be looking at like rechecking these things all the time. And that reminds me of Cthulhu Wars, which has always been one of my complaints with that, is that you just really can't play the game successfully without constantly going and like, wait, what does that do again? Wait, before we do combat, what are your abilities again? And I kind of had the same thing going for it. A little simpler than Cthulhu Wars. It wasn't terrible, but it was uh, it was a little bit of a, a downside for me. The one thing I will say here, I think in Cthulhu Wars, they're all, you get your books and they're all yeah. unique for each guy or for each faction but here they're all the same so at least you guys have the same everyone has the same board the same starting reference so i think with more and more plays you know if you're playing this uh two three times a month you'll get more familiar with them you'll be able to reference and i'll say hey which phase one powers do you have which phase two which phase three i think that'll come with more game plays unlike Cthulhu Wars for me is always just, I don't even bother with it. Like, I, this guy can do some crazy stuff. This guy can do some crazy stuff. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, he can, oh, this guy can fly across the board now and destroy me? Okay, well, that's cool. I didn't, all right, that's fun. Well, two comments there. One is that you said if we got to play in this two or three times a month, that's never going to happen. So let's just skip that <laughs> no, right now. Right. But two, I, I would have agreed yeah. with you, but actually playing it, I actually found it more difficult because I didn't even have, like, a frame of reference to say, like, oh, okay, you know, he's got the big, crazy, green, tentacled monsters. It makes sense he can go into the ocean and do this thing. So I can kind of link why does he have that ability with this one because everybody had access to the same abilities. It was hard for me to track. Maybe it's just me, but it was hard for me to track like he could do this and I could do this. And I literally was, I kept thinking I had a power because Chris had unlocked it and it's the same options. And so I would be like, oh, I can do this. And then I'd look at my board. Oh, wait, I didn't unlock that one. So for me, it was even actually a little bit more challenging, but I, I think they both have their, their hangups. It seems really counterintuitive, but I felt the same way. I really had a hard time keeping track. Whereas, you know, in, in Cthulhu Wars, it's so asymmetric that once you've been playing it for a little bit, even in one game, you know, after a round or two or a move or two, you start under really understanding what your opponents can do. Here, it was a little bit less like that. One of the other nuances about combat I wanted to mention is that each territory has a number associated with it and they resolve the combats a numerical order from smallest to largest. So that's one thing that kept me kind of interested because, you know, you would see this 
first region would resolve and you'd be like, oh, okay, what cards did each yeah. person use and what cards are they going to have available when they end up fighting against me in a, in region number five. So that kept me kind of paying attention too, and very kind of like, oh, okay. I didn't, I didn't tune out like in other, like an eclipse, you know, if two other guys are fighting, I don't care. But here I was like, oh, okay, they use that card and that card. That's interesting. Now I know what I'm going to do here. Okay, cool. That's one other nuance about combat that I really enjoy. Yeah, I think here. that's true. Now, one other thing that I thought was one of the cool kind of Euro-y mechanisms here, other than the Ankh powers, and that is the action selection. And the way action selection work, right, is that there's basically four types of actions you can take every round and you get to pick two of them. But it's like a shared kind of action pool. So if I take one action, I move this one track up one space, and then I could take another action, move it up one space. And then when Chris went, then he would pick two actions to do as well, but he would be moving the same marker up the space as I did. So we kind of had this shared pool of, of total actions we were going to take over the course of the game. And then what would happen is that if you got this marker for a specific type of action to the end of the track, then you trigger an event that happened. This was pretty cool, but I do have some qualms with it. And the main challenge that I had, and maybe it's just because it really impacted me, but we played a four-player game, and I almost never had the chance to impact to, to basically trigger an event. It, and it, I think it was just completely based on turn order, where I would get done with my turn, and I would have I would have had to take an action that set Chris up to be able to take an event, and then he would take another action that would summon someone else up for an event, and then he would get, take the event. And then Steve's set up for it. And then by the time it got back to me, all the events had been triggered and there was no possible way for me to trigger an event again. Maybe just completely random this time. Maybe it was bad planning on my t my part, but it did feel like those events were pretty important. They let you take control of temples, which were hugely impactful on scoring. They let you, you know, set the boundaries of some of the territories with the camel mechanism and they let you start combats and get the, the tiebreaker token. It felt very arbitrary as far as who was going to be able to trigger those events so you know to me it was like it was a clever idea when i first started we started playing i was like i really like this this is pretty neat but man in a, in practice it was kind of frustrating to watch everybody else get to trigger these big things completely you know like outside of my control how did you guys feel about it you, it seemed like everyone else was pretty okay with that and you didn't didn't run into the same frustrations that i did Chris, you got any thoughts? Yeah, any thoughts? I mean, what's your hot take? My my hot my hot take on that one. I think that it was probably more a matter of chance than anything else, because really, I mean, it, it's totally going to be dependent on the moves that the people before you take. So yeah, the turn order is one thing, but I don't think it's like the fourth person is automatically going to be in that kind of a, in a problem area. And I also think that when you got to the actual impact of that on the game, I'm not sure it made that much of a difference because. I mean, I think I triggered about the first three or four events. They were huge, and I put a bunch of things out on the board, but I was also giving up on other things because I was using the actions that would give me an event. And so, for example, I didn't move up the Ankh track very much. I know that cost me some battles. I know it cost me the opportunity to get some of the Guardians, which are these high-powered uh, monster pieces that are sort of the equivalent of the monsters in Blood Rage. And by the end of the, the game... Not only did I not have any monsters, but I couldn't get any monsters because all of you you guys had taken all of them. There's a limited pool. So I know that that affected how the game went for me. And by, and by the end, I mean, like I said, I triggered the first three or four of them and I ended up coming in at the end at the bottom of the pack. So, yeah, 
I think you're. I think you're probably right about that, Chris. Maybe they weren't. Maybe the events weren't as impactful as it felt like during the game. It was just frustrating to watch everyone else do it. Although I would say, though, you know, you said you didn't have access to any of those monsters, but hey, when we merged, you got access to all the monsters I unlocked. So that was pretty cool, right? That that was that was pretty. Th- thanks for letting me <laughs> use your monsters, Tim. I, I do appreciate that. And and I also I completely understand how frustrating that would be. But you know. It just feels like in any game, there's going to be moments where things just don't go your way and it's going to be frustrating. And, and with any element of chance, that's just par for the course. Yeah, well, let me tell you one of the reasons why it frustrated me specifically in this game. And that is because I knew that I wanted to write the, the game does have those culling mechanisms. And so you know that if you don't get to a certain point, you're just going to get out of the game or you're going to merge with somebody else and just lose some of the agency that you're characters get to do but i felt like i didn't really have much control over that now obviously there were opportunities for me to make strategic decisions and my moves and my attacks and which abilities i unlocked to help me set up with points you know i don't know it just felt like the game kind of ran away with me without me being able to take advantage of some of those things that you guys did but again you know probably a lot to do with my own strategic choices as well i think i'm with with Chris on this one. So what the thing we're talking about is officially called the central dashboard. And there, I just counted up, there's 18 potential events on there. And I think we got through 16 of them before Steve met the win condition. And I think I got to trigger for a couple camels and a pyramid that I wasn't able to use and then, uh, or a monument that I wasn't able to use. And then one of the, one of the combats. So, you know, that's a quarter of them right there. And I think Tim, I remember there was at least twice where you, passed up an opportunity to trigger an event. Maybe you weren't in the right position to make it worth your while or something like that happened. But I don't know, I really enjoyed this mechanism. I thought it was pretty unique how you you march down these little tracks towards triggering an event and you have to kind of time it right. You know, and does it behoove you to do this right now or should you wait or are, do you have no choice? So I kind of like the situations you can put yourself in, you can put other people in when you're working this track and this event thing. It's, I don't know. It was pretty novel to me. And yeah, I and it. I don't disagree. I did really like everything that was going on there. Maybe if you were just flipping cards to see when an event triggered, it would have felt the same way, kind of arbitrary, kind of random. And that's that's how it felt here. But um, yeah, it was cool in general. I liked the track. I liked the the events that would trigger and that there was a variety of them. And you know, depending on who hit it at the right time, it's kind of neat. The whole flipping card thing is, uh, I just I don't like that comparison because here you at least you know what's coming up next. And you can see how far away that it is. Yeah, but there were so many times. There were so many times in this game where I literally could not trigger an event, and I couldn't do it this time. And I knew I couldn't do it on the next turn. But I, there was no way to stop me from setting you guys up to trigger an event in like su- succession, basically. So I get that, but it felt like flipping cards to me. It felt like there was virtually no control, no matter how visible it was and, and when they were coming. Okay. One thing that it did give as an interesting strategic choice, I thought, it coupled with this other mechanism of that central dashboard, which was you had to select your actions in order from top of the board yeah. to the bottom of the board. So I believe it was uh, the top move. move was the move action, and then the bottom one was the onk action, and you had to go in that order. If you triggered an event... That was the end of your turn. You got to do the thing that was related to that action. Then that was it. You didn't get to take a second action. So there were situations where I could have, and I'm sure others were in the same scenario, could have triggered an event but chose not to because you really had an action that we wanted to take that we couldn't take beforehand. Or did trigger an action and decided to forfeit that second move, that second action, 
because there was some benefit to to doing that. And I thought it added an interesting little strategic choice that you could make in there as well. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, Adam, any other any other mechanisms? Yeah. One of those events that we've been talking about with this board that you move your little the little tracker along was this camel train. It was called camel train, camel caravan event. And I thought that was pretty cool because the game starts, at least the map that we use today, starts with a set number, I think five regions think out four. there. Was it maybe four regions, yeah, whatever it was. Like and then one of the uh, events is these this camel caravan. You get these camels, you divide up the regions into two. So you create this whole other area that you're going to compete for and get the same kind of scoring for as those original five. So you can, if someone has a total lockdown on a certain area, you can kind of slice their area in half and separate it out. And all these adjacency rules get broken. They might lose some of their strength by doing this. You might be able to move in there and take advantage of that. So I thought this whole camel caravan mechanism was kind of cool. Chris, you're saying you weren't the biggest fan of it? No, I actually liked the mechanism. I thought it was really cool. I just thought it was weird that they chose camels as a way to separate off the different areas. I mean, sand dunes or something or a wall might have made more sense. I just thought that was a weird stylistic choice. No, that's I I get that. Yep. Yeah, right on. Impenetrable impenetrable line of camels. <laughs> yeah, you don't right. say that. Well, I you know, thematically I kinda linked it to they're making a path through the desert. These camels are, are caravanning through the desert and so now all of a sudden there's a natural divide, uh, you know, like a, a boundary that's come up. I don't know. That's just like in real I'm life. trying. I'm trying here. Well, since we're kind of uh, nudging into theme and uh, production here, why don't we talk about that a little bit more? And I want to start by saying that I really liked what this was doing thematically. The game was all linked about being a god and trying to remain, re, trying to retain the devotion that your followers have. So your resources, like the one resource that you really got and spent in this game were followers. Just thematically and thinking of like old school Egyptian gods. Yeah, they don't care about the followers. Like they, they, they need a lot of them so that they can just sacrifice them for whatever thing, right? It's like very <laughs> biblical to sacrifice people and to get what you need or whatever. Um, so that was pretty fun. But also just the whole ancient Egyptian god situation, devotion was the, the, the winning points. You just, you needed to have more followers. And then if you didn't have enough followers or you didn't have enough devotion, you were irrelevant, so people started to forget about you and they started to be like, oh, wait, was this this God or this God? Okay, I guess they're just the same God in my mind, right? And so over time, you just merged. And then eventually, if you don't have enough devotion, you're just not irrelevant at all and you're out. You're out of the game. Nobody cares about you anymore. You're, you're a dead God. It doesn't, you don't matter anymore. So I just thought that the way that they just leaned into that whole theme of faith and devotion and gods and all of that stuff, it, it really worked here. I thought it was pretty cool. What do you guys think of the, the theme, the, you know, kind of the tie-in? I want to comment, it is a bit darkly satirical that the followers here are really just yeah, a resource. Totally. <laughs> you, you auction them off and you sacrifice them and they're just, they're just gone at the drop of a hat. So that was kind of a neat tie-in that you brought up there, Tim. Uh, Chris, do you have anything? About yeah, I, I agree with everything you said. And just the Egyptian gods theme, I just thought that was so cool. It just it makes for some really cool visuals. It makes for some really cool thematics. It actually adds, I think, a dimension that is pretty unique in the sense that there's at least I have not seen that many games out there with this subject matter. Maybe that's just because I haven't seen them, but I haven't seen a lot of them. Like I find myself interested to read about those gods. I mean, I know a couple of them. You like. Anubis and you know Horus, for example, or Ra from you know reading about them in books when I was a kid. But there's a lot of mythology there 
and a lot of legend that I just don't know that much about. And, and it's really interesting. It's something that I'd like to see more of. All right. Well, what about the production on this game? Now, we played on Tabletop Simulator, but you've seen the production. A lot of minis here, some decent amount of art. What do you guys think of it? This is the Simon production, and it looks amazing. I've heard reviewers say these are some of the, mo- the best miniatures that they've ever seen. The monuments all look cool. They have a little slot for putting in your tokens. So they kind of hold up your tokens and makes them very visible and very striking when you're looking at them on the board. And the gods are all huge and tower over everything. And it it just looks amazing. So I want to get this thing in front of me on an actual table uh, because it looks outstanding. So I can't say enough about the production. It looks fantastic. The question I have is about the difference between the normal production retail version of the game versus the Kickstarter. Because from what I understand... A lot of the things that are 3D tokens or figures, minis, what have you, in the Kickstarter version are cardboard chits in the retail version. And to me, that would make a huge impact on how this game feels, which is true of so many area control games and games like this that are big thematic. You want to have those big pieces and a a pyramid that's an actual pyramid that you put on the board with a slot in it for your god's token is going to be a heck of a lot more exciting to play with than a cardboard shit with a little picture of a pyramid on it. There, there could be a very big difference between the experience between the one and the other. Yeah, but let's face it, Chris, if you were to buy this game, you'd hunt out the Kickstarter version and just pick that up anyway. I can't afford that. Yeah, well, I, I, a couple things I want to call out. Like, the art here surprised me because I generally, I would have thought they were so focused on the the minis and thinking back in blood rage right like i actually don't like the artistic representation in that game the minis are cool the monsters are cool but other than that i don't really care about the art and this was completely the opposite the board again kind of going against blood rage here i never liked the board in blood rage it's very plain it's very boring and generic and this one it's just got such great illustrative style it's a hex board but it doesn't feel like a hex board it feels somehow that it's laid out in a way that feels like a, a true map of Egypt with the, you know, Nile uh, running through the middle of it. It just some something, it just works really well. The art, the artistic direction they took with the game board was fantastic. And then the, like the, the God powers, uh, you know, the God cards that you've got um, and even your combat cards, the gods were cool, really, you know, detailed illustrations of these really cool monster looking, you know, creatures. The combat cards you had all looked like just hieroglyphic uh, you know, so that it felt with the, it fit with the theme really well. They didn't go super detailed there. They did something that just, you know, kind of drew the theme in uh, without going overboard. So altogether, I thought the package as a whole here was great. And I would also love to play with this game in person with those huge God minis on the board and all the other minis and the pyramids and all that stuff. I think it's, it's pretty awesome. I want to emphasize your comments about the map uh, from both you guys. It's almost like a like almost like a topographical but lithograph kind of combination situation with these really kind of fine lines and different brush strokes going through. It's just very beautiful and fun to look at. It's, it's pretty amazing. I haven't seen anything quite like it. It's really nice. Yeah, and it wasn't hard to tell either. As as you know, thin as the lines are between the hexes and stuff, it's always very easy to see where where spots ended and and began. The natural um, territory marks on the border, all like the rivers or, or lakes and water. So it's very easy to tell the difference there. And they did a great job of laying that out without getting in the way of the characters taking up the space and, 
and things like that. So yeah, pretty, pretty great. I remember looking at this when it was on Kickstarter and I think one of my turnoffs of it at the time was that they did not have this finished board artwork and it just seemed very plain what the board looked like. And I was kind of like, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't seem great. Like, I don't, I don't want to play with this thing. But after seeing this, I almost, oh, man, I kind of wished I'd backed it because it's, it mm-hmm. looks so awesome in person. But anyway, we'll get into um, a little bit of, more about our thoughts about whether we would maybe have chosen to back it now that we've played it. But from a production perspective, I don't have a single complaint here. I thought it was great. Any Anything you guys found flaws with or, or you know things that you didn't like about the production? Not a one, honestly. It was gorgeous. I, can, I don't have any immediate nitpicks that I can think of. All right, mm-hmm. cool. Well, let's jump into our next question, which is what were your memorable moments? Any, any moments that stood out to you in this gameplay? Adam, what about you? I think coming into that, merge tim where i was i really thought it was gonna be you and i so i was planning on it i was like all right how can we make this work in our favor and then all of a sudden my little token is right on top of chris's which means i am no longer in the bottom two places so i was like oh okay going into the very end there that last combat i got like i don't know five points or something like that and i was ahead of steve for a a half a second (laughs) and then right after that it goes to the you know the next sector up and boom he wipes out everybody and gets three more devotion and wins the game so i thought i had a brief chance there to win it all and then it got taken right out from under me what about you tim uh yeah a lot lot of big moments here a lot of big memorable moments and you know the merge was one of them but not even the standout i think it was there was a couple of combats where it was just you know it's that bluffing game it it felt like oh my god as long as he doesn't play this one card i'm set but i'm sure he thinks i'm gonna play this one card and i was always wrong i'm obviously terrible at that at that game but uh it was fun it was fun to have those big i'm gonna commit everything in here and i know i'm gonna get this guy and then i failed but you know, it was never that painful. It's This is one of those games where it's like all about combat. It's like that Dune game we played a couple weeks ago or Kemet. You go in there, you have to fight because that's the only way you're going to get anything. But then if you lose, it's no big deal. You go into another conflict. In fact, even in the same round sometimes. And so you could play two or three conflicts in, on one turn. And so it, it never felt too bad if you got beat down. There's always another opportunity coming up. What about you, Chris? My big moment is the same as Adam's, but... This is like I'm going to give you the the Rashomon version where it's like so this is this is it from my perspective. So here we are, you know, a good third of the way through the game and Steve and I just cruised off to a really early lead and I was like just, you know, kind of looking behind me going, look at, look at those suckers back there. And you guys are kind of wallowing back there in your I'm about ready to get merged zone. All of a sudden, you know, you guys start creeping up and creeping up and creeping up. And then all of a sudden we're at the point where we're getting ready to have the merge. And Adam, who was so very excited about merging, he said, uh, chose not to merge. And, <laughs> and I ended up merging with Tim instead. So I question whether Adam was really that excited about merging. But that's neither here nor there. Hold on. Uh, hold on. Hold on. Tim, <laughs> hold on a second. Tim could have oh, played, yes. Tim could have built a monument, I believe, that would have caused me to merge. It would have given you a point. You would have surged ahead one. So it's really you need to be looking at Tim here who decided that he wanted to be merge buddies with you. That's what I thought. Chris, I just love <laughs> spending time with you, man. I just, uh, I just love thanks, doing thanks, things man. with you. What can I say? I do think it's I do think it's interesting that you used Rashomon as a reference when you really should have saved that for the Rising Sun review at some point, but 
you know. <laughs> Touche. It was it could have been anybody's game. I mean, even at the end, I mean, when Tim and I were paired up and Adam was catching up with Steve and Steve was running off with it, even by I think we were maybe what five or six points yeah. away from each other at the end. So it was not a it was not a blowout by any means, even though Steve maintained a pretty strong lead through most of it. So I think that's that's probably a good thing that there's things you can do even up to the end that are going to increase your position. Yeah. And even that last round where he took the last three points by it, by, you know, us both sacrificing all of our guys, I could have, you know, played a different card that would have let us get a whole bunch of points by winning the combat instead of, instead Mm -hmm. of expecting to lose the combat. So yeah, there was definitely some, some opportunities to just surprise them with the right card and, and move things in a different direction. All right, cool. Well, would you guys request to play this game again? How about you, Chris? I'm having a hard time with this one because I think the answer is probably no. There's so much about this game to like. I think some of the mechanisms were really good. I think that the production of it is absolutely fantabulous. That thing about the merging and the cutoff at the end, to me, it was just so not some so so distasteful. I just really dislike that mechanism. And to me, that would kind of kick this game out of my uh, I'd choose it mode because there's too many games that do this stuff and do it better. That combined with the fact that it felt so complex. I mean, there were so many rules checks. I mean, this is supposed to be like an hour and a half game. And we, I think, you know, packed it into a nice svelte four hours. that, That felt a little bit too much. Now, having said that, if I played a couple more games of it, I might feel more streamlined to me. I'm sure it wouldn't take that long. But in reality, if I can bust out Cthulhu Wars or even Kemet or Blood Rage, I don't think I need to put up with the things about this game that I didn't like. So I'd, I'd play it again, and I think I'd probably enjoy playing it again, but I probably would not ask to bring this one back. I think it would go faster on another play. I think most of our rules checks were pretty simple things that we just wanted to, you know, make sure we got right. And we were also working off like a prototype rule book. So sometimes you check a rule and be like, that still doesn't seem right. Then, oh, let's go search up the real one. So, yeah, there was some of that playing on tabletop simulator without none of us having played the official version before. That said, I think I probably won't request to play it again either. I enjoyed it. I liked a lot of the mechanisms here. And for a, you know, for a, a troops on a map game, I thought it was fun. I, I had a good time with it. I think the key is, and we just talked about this around Dune, what makes me happy with an area control game is it plays in an hour. So I'll take Blood Rage or Dune more likely than I will sit and play this for three hours because this is the same reason why I probably aren't, I'm not going to be searching out Kemet. Both games that I think, you know, they have they share a theme. They both have some unique mechanisms that I enjoyed, some little bit of kind of resource management type of mechanisms to go along with it, the you know area control. And I thought they were both clever and fun games, but um, it's not really my type of game anyway. So it, it kind of has to be really special to be something I'm, I'm coming back to. That said, I didn't have any problem at all with the merge mechanism. I knew it was there from the beginning. You know when you're in last place, you just got to plan for it. So it's kind of fun to, to try to prep for it and plan. And then can we exploit the fact that this is going to happen? So it did not bother me at, at the least. Like I was the one that was definitely going to merge and I merged and I was just like, cool, let's keep doing this thing. You know, that's something I, I have heard other people criticize and not be happy with, but it, that wasn't a problem for me. It was really just the length of the game that 
dinged it a little bit for me, but I, I still had fun with it. What about you, Adam? You know, Chris wasn't planning on the merge the whole game, whereas you and I kind of were, Tim. So I wonder if that kind of affected, you know, mm-hmm. a mindset shift like that kind of. Yeah, a little stung a little bit. He felt like he had a chance. Yeah, to like that, a kind of a you know standout. Like a jolt. That's probably player. true. I would request to play this game. You know, if I had mm-hmm. three hours or so set aside in an afternoon or a night, and I was mentally prepared for a longer game, I am kind of starting to favor these hour-long games, like Smartphone or Dune, Game of Conquest and Diplomacy. You know, something that can get played relatively quick. They could play over and over, maybe play it twice back to back and explore it a little more, but. This game intrigued me enough. I thought there's plenty more here to explore. There's all kinds of modules and this and that you can throw in. But I just this game that we played by itself standalone was fantastic. There's some things we didn't even talk about. The you know how the characters can occupy hexes and that could kind of block out movement. So you can sort of block portions of the board from other characters being able to get through because characters can't land on other. We didn't even talk about. So there's just a bunch of kind of stuff that was emerging as we got towards the end of the game that I was like man this is this is really neat there's a lot of things here to look at so I thoroughly enjoyed this one I would I would request to play it again yeah and I'd be happy to play it with you and one of the other things that I didn't mention earlier was that there are a whole bunch of scenarios to play here which is kind of neat so you're not always just playing the same game and distributing asymmetric powers or whatever the scenarios are set up based on player count, but you can also kind of choose different types of scenarios. And then there's a whole bunch of modules, as Adam mentioned, that could come in here. And we saw some of the module components out on the board, even if we didn't play with them. And they look cool. Like there was this whole government tra- like little player board that had all kinds of stuff going on. There was this other big monster that could move around between different players. And and the scenarios, apparently, you know, they might have some different setups. They might have some different, the different, the monsters that we played, right? There are only three available in this game, but I think that varies game to game. So scenario to scenario. So that'd be really fun to explore those different powers. So I think there's a lot to dig into here. If you like this type of game and you enjoy the gameplay here, I think this is a game that you could play a lot and, and have a lot of fun with. And I'd be happy to jump back into it. So... All right, that'll wrap up our review of Ankh, Gods of Egypt. We're going to talk about a themed cocktail, and we're going to be talking about some games that we've had on our table right after this. So, Chris, what do you got for us this week? It's been a few weeks since I did one of the themed cocktails, so it feels really good to be back to that. And for this week's indulgence, we're going to head to Cairo to sample another of the great classic cocktails. This one also happens to be one of the all-time favorites for a lot of tropical drink aficionados, of which I am one, or at least I aspire to be one. Let's jump into the Wayback Machine and set the date for 1942. It's World War II. General Rommel's Africa Corps is tearing up northern Egypt. The Allied forces under General Montgomery were pushing back valiantly, but, you know, these were tough times, folks, and Rommel's advance had cut the Allied supply lines. And, of course, no resupply means no liquor. As a result, those folks who were lucky enough to actually get a drink at all were drinking the stuff that was left when all the good stuff was gone. And, as many of us know, cheap booze equals world-class hangover. Fortunately, the British headquarters in Cairo happened to be in the repurposed Shepherd's Hotel, where the man behind the bar was the legendary Egyptian bartender Joe Shalom. This is a name that is well-known, very well-known, to those who like a little bit of history with their drinks. 
I mean, he was a bit of a, a living history book, having served everyone from Winston Churchill to Egypt's King Farouk. So anyway, after hearing one too many complaints about a rough morning after, Joe the bartender, as he was known, whipped up a hangover cure made of ingredients that he could still get relatively easily, even with the existing supply problems. And, drumroll please, the suffering bastard was born. We get this recipe courtesy of drink historian Jeff Beachbum Berry. Here's what you're going to need. First, one ounce of dry gin, one ounce of brandy. Bourbon and rum are also popular alternatives if you don't have brandy around. One half ounce of sweetened lime juice. Rose's lime juice is the most common, but your grocery store probably carries a couple of different brands and they're all perfectly fine. You'll also need two dashes of Angostura bitters and four ounces of chilled ginger beer. Not ginger ale, although I imagine this would still probably be a pretty pleasant drink with that as well. But try to get ginger beer if you can. You shake all the ingredients, except for the ginger beer, with a big helping of ice cubes, and then you stir in the ginger beer at the end, and then you pour the whole concoction, unstrained, into a double old-fashioned glass, and then breathe a sigh of relief as your suffering comes to an end. Side note on this one, this is one of those cocktails where just taking the liquor out of it and leaving everything else the same makes for a pretty enjoyable drink. So if you need your full faculties for your next game of Ankh, that's a pretty good option as well. Thanks, Chris. So uh, I was kind of lucky tonight because you sent me the ingredient, the recipe just about an hour before and I wasn't going to be able to run out get any, anything. And I had everything I needed with the exception that I did unfortunately have to get down and use some Maker's Mark as the bourbon instead of anything decent tonight because that's all I had left in the house. But also I somehow happened to have like a little six ounce can of ginger beer in my fr- back in the back of my fridge, which was a shock to me because I have no idea how it got there. So it was perfect for tonight's recipe. So thank you for for, uh, picking a recipe that I could actually make. Excellent. Yeah, pretty tasty too. All right, cool. Well, why don't we talk about some games that we have been playing lately? Chris, why don't you start us off? This week, I wanted to talk a little bit about the game Keyflower, a game that I had the opportunity to play recently. And this is not normally one of my type of games, but this is one that was particularly interesting and I wanted to go over it a little bit on the show. So Keyflower is designed by Sebastian Bleasdale and Richard Brees, and is published by R&D Games. Now this is a 2012 game, so it's a little bit old school, but it's still at 79 on BGG's overall lists, and so I was kind of interested for that reason as well, and it's one that I had not played before. And it's got a lot of mechanisms like auctioning, tile laying, city building, and worker placement. The game takes place over four rounds, and during each round, a series of tiles goes out into a neutral zone, which is not your city, but in the center where they're accessible to everybody. And each one of them represents one element of your city, or a city, and it can offer a resource, an effect, or a way to score points, with the benefit triggered by placing one or more workers on it. There are also workers of various colors, and there's a lot of workers in this one, which I'll come back to, because that's one of the interesting things about this game. So you go around the table either bidding on the tile or using the benefit from that tile. And once a player's bid, any other bidders have to use a worker of the same color. So for example, if you're trying to get that tile, you can bid, say, one red worker. The next person who wants to outbid you has to put down two workers, red workers, or three red workers, so they have to stick with the color that was selected. The highest bidder at the end of that will put the tile into their city at the end of the round. You can also choose to use that tile's benefit. This isn't exactly a bid, but there is an escalating cost. So the first time that somebody uses it, it costs one worker. Subsequent times, 
it increases the cost by one. So the second person to use it will be two workers and the third time three workers. Again, all having to stick with the same color scheme we were talking about before. So whoever places the first worker there to use the space, you have to stick with that same color. So it means you have to have workers of that color available to you. So at the end of the round, the players collect the tiles that they want into their city. And here's the trick. They also collect any workers that are on a tile that they now own. So in other words, using somebody else's tile is perfectly fine, but it's going to cost you a worker. If you use a tile that you own or that you have been the, were the winning bidder on, that's not going to cost you a worker. And once you get past the first round, you can use tiles in your own city or someone else's or in the center of the table, but you're going to lose the worker if you use somebody else's tile. So this game is going to go for four rounds, and after that you're going to get to winter, in which case the players are going to race to implement as many point scoring options at the very end as possible, and the player with the most points at the end of the game is, of course, the winner. So like I said, this is not normally my type of game. I'm not a huge uh, tiling guy, although I've you know come to love Cascadia recently, uh, and this is a little bit different than that, although there is some matching of tiles that, that can happen throughout the game. It, was, it had some mechanisms that I thought were particularly interesting. One of them was there is a ton of workers in this. I mean, I'm used to like games where you've got two or three workers and you have to like so carefully choose where you're going to place them. This one, you've got handfuls of them. You may have like eight, 12, 15 workers in a round because you're throwing out two or three or four of them as a way to you know, bid on these tiles. So you're using up a lot of workers. And the other thing that I thought was particularly interesting about this was that you have to move resources in order to use them. So when you're in your city, you can also upgrade the tiles in your city so you may get a basic benefit or you can upgrade it by spending resources in order to flip the tile and get an upgraded benefit. But in order to do that, you actually have to move those resources to that tile. The movement action is one of the tile-based actions that you can use. So you have to use a worker to go to a movement tile to move pieces of you know, resource from one location to another before you can actually use them. So that was a particularly interesting thing as well. And there's also an element to this where you keep a, a, you're keeping secret the workers that you have. So you have a little shield that, so people don't really know what color workers you have, how many workers you have. So there's a little bit of a mystery there that you're trying to, you're trying to kind of keep that information from people. This reminded me a little bit of Furnace in that you were bidding and there was a benefit, even if you didn't bid or you didn't win a bid, you still got some benefit. But you brought the pieces that you bid on into your city and then were trying to do things within your city as well. So, I mean, not, not a huge similarity, but it definitely did have some of the same feels as that. It's a good solid game. This can be played pretty quickly, even with some of the complexity that's in there. I think when we played, yeah, we had a six player count and it took us and it took us about an hour. So I thought that was that was pretty reasonable amount of time for this. And the bidding caused some interesting player interaction. It wasn't too restrictive, which is one of the things that I really liked about it. One of my big complaints about worker placement games, a lot of Euro games, is this intense feeling of restriction. In this game, you didn't really have that because you weren't the only per only it wasn't like one person could use a tile and only that person you could have multiple uses it just got more and more expensive to do that or if you you were unable to win a bid on a tile in the first place you could keep going back at it by bringing more pieces to the table more workers to try to bid on those tiles so it added some interesting mechanisms backed off a little bit on the high restrictiveness and as a result i thought it was a, it was a pretty fun game Probably not my first choice again because it's just the type of game, but I, I enjoyed it. 
Yeah, I was going to say, Chris, this, I, you know, this is a game that's been high on my want to playlist for a while, but I never would have expected you to, you know, to enjoy this game. So it's not one that you would ask to play again then. You know, I, I feel like I'm, my, my world is falling apart around me because I'm kind of inclined to say, yes, I might ask to play Keyflower again, but nice. no, I probably wouldn't ask to play Ankh again. So, um, you know, yeah, I think I probably would. Part, part of it is the investment which we were just talking about. It's not a huge investment. It's a fun game. It's got some interesting stuff going on, and the investment is not huge. I mean, if you can play this game with six players in an hour, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, that is, that's pretty impressive. I did not realize it was going to play that quickly. The, my second question was, how was the analysis paralysis in this? Because I think it feels like there'd be a lot of decisions from what I've seen of the game. Did you feel like you kind of get stuck and you, or, or was it pretty easy? Like I, I have to do this thing to do this thing. So I'll just rush right into it. It moved pretty quickly. I mean, I felt more analysis paralysis playing Ankh tonight when I was trying to figure out the perfect combination of cards to beat somebody in a combat than I spent you know, doing in, in Keyflower. That moved along pretty quickly. And I don't think... I, I don't recall there being any times when it you know a person took more than a minute or so to get a turn done, and usually they were super quick. Especially uh, that's another benefit of having a high player count is you have a lot of <laughs> you have a lot of time to think about uh, what your next turn is going to be while everybody else goes around the table. But I think you'd love this one, Tim. Yeah. I think this is a game you'd really enjoy. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to play it. I feel like it's on. I think it might be on Board Game Arena now too. So I should probably try to knock out a game and see how it goes. This is a game I keep hearing about and hearing about, and it's. Like, like you said, Chris, it's from 2012, and I keep hearing good things, and it's still in the top 100, so I also want to play this game. It's, you know, piqued my interest. It keeps coming back. I keep hearing about it. I want to I wanna play this one. Cool. Adam, anything, what, what have you been playing this week? Well, I talked about it in the last episode, maybe the last couple episodes, but Brian Baru, High King of Ireland, I got my copy in. This game is by Per Sylvester, and the artist is Deidre Dabara. Publishers Osprey Games punched it when I was down at Sarah's. The baby started acting up and this and that, so I didn't have a chance to play it. I got it home, and it says it requires three to five players. That's a resource that I didn't have. So what I did was play this four-handed by myself, and oh my goodness, I love this game. I can only imagine what it's like playing with real people. It's got to be amazing. <laughs> The art here and the color palette, almost everybody universally around the globe says this thing is beautiful. I think I've heard one detractor to the art, and that's all I can think of. I wonder who that could have been. And, and I quote, <laughs> I don't know. It's ugly. Ugly, I say. <laughs> ugly. This game's beautiful. It has like a little spot UV, um, not only on the box, but also on the map. The cards are beautiful. The, you know, Deirdre DeVar is an artist here. She has a little comic book in Ireland and her art. Uh, come, it's just it's just darling to look at. So it's a trick taker, right? Kind of like, but not in a traditional sense. It's kind of like shamans where a person plays a suit and you don't have to follow suit. You can play off suit and you get to pick one of the lesser, so-called lesser benefits at the bottom of the card. But if you do win the trick, you get to place a token in that region. And there's kind of eight regions in Ireland and there's area control involved. So that's kind of where the bulk of the points are going to come. But I want to talk about the so-called upkeep phase of this game. And that's where you resolve these steps kind of in order. And those kind of cascade and may affect steps later in the upkeep phase. So this is just fantastic to me. The first part of this is this marriage thing where... Yeah, you work yourself up a track, whatever, but it's represented here. You marry some eligible bachelor or bachelorette. 
those go into your hand, you get those for points, and there's also a benefit on those. Maybe that gives you another area in a region you get to place your token on so that you might gain the control of that region once you get to that point of the resolution. Or you might get this other token that lets you get more points if you defeat the Vikings, which is the next part of this whole thing is the Vikings come to raid. If there's any Viking tokens left, and if you have the fewest Viking tokens, boom, then whoever has the most Viking tokens gets to put a little a little token on top of one of your regions that negates that as long as that Viking token is on there. So you don't get to count that towards your area control. Whereas if you do have the most Viking tokens from the cards you played during the round, you get to now grab one of these sort of little prestige or little these little shields that say, hey, I fought off the Vikings, and you get to add points and that's cumulative so say you've fought off the vikings three times or four times then you get however many of those tokens that's how many points you get next up you go over to the the kind of little church mini game if you have the most tokens in this little church area you get to build a monastery and add that to one of your regions to one of your little cities and that city counts as double for the area control then you clear those tokens off and the second place gets it. So each of these kind of has a similar aspect where second place in each of these region gets a little bonus as well. And that's kind of how this game goes. It goes around, around, around. You do that four or five or six times, depending on how many players there are. And that's the game. I think we would love this one. I hope we would love this one. I want to get it played. As far as I know right now, there's no online implementation, so it might be a while. I really enjoyed this one. And I think it's going to be one of my one of my favorite games. Just playing it four-handed by myself, I had a great time. What are you guys' thoughts? Yeah, it, it looks really, it sounds really cool to me. And, I, you know, when I read the description, I like all the things that are going on, little bonuses and stuff like that, but I was still thinking of it as a trick taker. And then I read a thread by Cole Worley today who was raving about this game. And he said many, many times that this is really a midweight Euro game, basically. The trick-taking is kind of just your action selection method. And I love the concept of that, that they used this clever little mini game of trick-taking to just kind of choose what actions you're going to do. So it sounds it sounds great. And we would have played it tonight. That was Adam's pick for the night, but we couldn't find a, an online platform to play it. So as soon as that's available, we'll definitely... Um, try to get a full game in because I'd, I'd love to give it a shot. And Chris, as your tastes are in flux, perhaps, you know, the tides are changing. I, does this game hold any interest for you? Yeah, it sounds like fun. It does sound good in the trick taking. I think one of the things that I dislike about trick taking or I, I did dislike about trick taking is the blandness of it. You know, just the straight card game. It's like, just give me a deck of cards and play a game. It's like, why, you know, why act fancy about it? And this all goes back to Capital Lux 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> and I think Shamans opened my eyes to the idea of having a trick-taking game where there were other elements to it. And I think that that makes for a much more interesting combination. And it sounds like this one, there's even more going on than in Shamans, for example. And so I, I'd love to give that a shot. Right on. So I also have had a pretty fun game on the table this week. It's a, a recent game by Stefan Feld with the art by Dennis Lauhausen, and the game is Bonfire. This is published by Pegaspiel and I think Hall Games in the United States. But um, I'm not going to go too much into de detail here. It's a fairly heavy game with a whole lot of things going on, but I wanted to call out a couple parts of it that I really like. Now, this game has a very weird theme, something about your gnomes, and your bonfires have gone out and you need to go find somebody that will help you relight them, except you need to do tasks for them before you will. I don't know. Who cares? 
This is Steffenfeld. It sounds like the things I did last week. <laughs> yeah, so pretty run of the mill. How's so your far. bonfire? Did you get your bonfire lit? <laughs> well, I had to get the gnomes to do the things. Freaking first. gnomes. Then, yeah. So it's cool that they that they put, you know, Steffenfeld is known for very dry euros with lots of browns and beiges. And somebody decided to put a, maybe it was Steffenfeld, I don't know. But somebody decided to put a colorful fantasy theme on this. And I really appreciate that they did that, even though the theme is fairly nonsensical. Um, but basically, there's a whole bunch of different mechanisms you can do. There are two things I wanted to call out. Number one is that the action selection mechanism in this game is really, really fun to me. So everybody has a board in front of them that is a bunch of, uh, you know, just squares. So it's kind of like you're going to be basically placing tiles on these squares on your board. And, and everybody has, I think, eight of these tiles that are kind of three by one. So it's like each of them has three little squares in them. And each of the squares represents a different action that you can take on a turn. I think there's seven different actions. So when you start the game, you get one of these tiles randomly get placed out on your board and you're going to get those three action tokens. So those are the three action tokens you can use. Once you get down to one action token left in your supply, then you can place another one of these tiles, but it has to be from the top or the bottom of your remaining supply. So you only have two choices of these three by one tiles to put out there, which are going to give you three more tiles, but you place it on, on this grid. And if you can place it uh, adjacent to another icon of the same type, then you get two of them. Or if you had three in a row, you get three. So as the game goes on and you're kind of building out this grid, if you can plan well, you can get like, instead of three action tiles to play with over the next few rounds, you might get like five or six or seven. And then there's a couple places on the board as well that will give you a bonus, like wild action token or a wild resource or things like that. So that, that part of it is really fun and clever to me. And I really enjoy that, that the way you get to choose your actions is based on this little puzzle that you got to do. But with the actions, there's a whole bunch of stuff you can do. There's a, a, a area of the board where you can move a boat around and go to these little islands. And if you go to an island, you can turn in resources for a quest. And so this is the second part of the game that I really love. But quests are just these little circle tokens, and each of them have completely different things on it. And there's, there's stacks of, there's probably like 60 different little quests in the game. And they can be as simple as have three of the same type of resource or have collected six of a specific type of action token or complete three of your bonfires, all kinds of different things that you can do. But basically you have to go and complete these, uh, grab these quests. When you, you do, you bring them over to your main player board. And one of the goals of the game is that when you complete one of those quests, you can flip it over and it's going to be worth end game points. And at the same time, then you get to take the little apprentice gnome that's sitting next to that bonfire and then move them out to a main board where you then get another bonus action. Again, there's a whole bunch of other interlocking mechanisms that are happening here, but I love that the whole game is driven by completely random quests that you have to go and collect. You have to take actions to go and collect them and then take actions to try to complete them. And that's one of the ways you're going to score points. There's a whole bunch of other ways, but that's my favorite. I love when you have just these little mini quests you have to do during a game and it kind of drives what you're trying to do with all your actions. So this game um, all pulls together into a really fun package that I've had a lot of fun with. I played a two-player game with friend of the show, Scott. Scott made me say that, so 
Um, uh, then there you go, Scott. <laughs> and then also I played a couple solo games and it's a really fun solo implementation. I think this game is one I'm going to be going back to fairly frequently. I'm having a fun time with it solo and I'd love to play it with other people too. There's a couple mechanisms here that are probably a little more complex than they need to be. So this game probably could be a degree or two lighter in weight and probably even be a better game. But it doesn't bother me too much. It's it's fun. It, it's been fun to kind of explore those, you know, the, the variety of mechanisms. Just a couple of areas of the game where you're kind of like, okay, so if I have to, if I want to get this done, then I have to do this first, and then I have to do this, and then I have to do this. It's one of those types of games, but not too bad. It, it clicks together pretty quickly over, um, over a short period of time. But that's, that's really the only complaint I have about it. Otherwise, it's fun. A lot going on in this game. The heaviest Stefan Feld game I've played so far, and I, I really like what he did here. Also, the, more, the most thematic Seffenfeld game I played, so I've got a few things going for it, and I'm uh, I'm happy to have it in my collection. Thematically, this just sounds bizarre, <laughs> but 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 in a good way. It sounds interesting. Did, does it feel like the theme is worked into the game, or is it just kind of tacked on because it sounds pretty interesting? No, the theme is definitely integrated. It doesn't. It's not a very sensical theme in the first place, but all the actions you're doing are interacting with the different components of the story of the theme. So I think for Tying a theme into a Euro game, I think they did a perfectly fine job with it here. And it, it does work. It's just a it's just a bizarre theme. Like it just, you know, I kind of half told you the story of it. None of it really makes sense. There is also a little bit of a kind of a cool tableau building thing where you can recruit these other specialist gnomes. And so they all have like special abilities. Uh, you know, so and I, I like I love that in a game too. Uh, I wanted to focus on the the goal mechanism, but the fact that you can kind of build up and get better at certain things, but you can never get more than six of these specialists. So you're kind of, you know, racing to, to get the one that's going to work the best to help you drive your strategy forward and then try to pick up the goals that will work with that strategy. So it's kind of this fun little thing of putting these different pieces of a puzzle together uh, to race to get to the end of the game. And uh, yeah, I, I've liked it a lot. I, I probably, this is probably not one that I would ever ask you guys to be like, yeah, we got to play this one on a Monday night. It's, it's just, a, it's a little bit too heavy and weird to uh you know to flow well and i don't know I don't, you probably wouldn't like it as much as i do but I'm, I'm really having fun with it all right well i think that will wrap up our episode of still remaining board game hot takes if you have any uh thoughts you want to share with us or questions or comments feel free to reach out to us on social media you can find us most frequently on twitter we're all pretty active on there but you can also find us on facebook or um, instagram if, if that's your platform of choice until next week, take care, everybody. Good night, all. Bye-bye.